0: Hey, uh, business as usual today. The leopard seal moved on. A few inside-out penguin pelts, the only reminder it ever passed this way. I missed a few dives, but after a thorough servicing, my gear is tip-top, Tommy. It's only the colour I don't like. Fortunately, I can't see the colour when I'm wearing it, and besides all that, I'm butyranopic, so it's trebly academic. When he last checked in, Mawson was all shirty with Davis over the problem split leadership caused during the first Banzari voyage, and I'll pick up where we left off. Davis was eager to water and victual at Albany, but instructions from the Antarctic Committee bade they make straight for Adelaide. Davis agreed to this change in his plans if they ditched an intention to make oceanographic stations across the Great Australian Bight, to which Mawson acquiesced making the station completing on the 17th of March, due south of Cape Lewin, the last of the voyage. On the 25th, the first ship sighted since the Norvegia came in view. The Cathay, a liner out of Durban and making for Melbourne, came alongside to greet the returning expedition, and to lob a sealed cask into the sea through a side gate before departing at speed. The cask, quickly extracted from the water, housed a cornucopia of fresh fruit vegetables and some frozen chickens, earning Captain Niven much radio born gratitude and leading to a feast at the evening meal, the highlight in most people's eyes being a whole tomato each. Nice. A final thigh-slapping practical gag, which I think has Hurley written all over it, saw Professor Johnson's tweed trousers run up the masthead to fly at half-mast. Oh, Hurley, you card. Captain Davis recognising this as a pretty shit joke, ordered the leggings got down sharpish under the guise of not wanting other ships to read them as a distress signal, thereby preventing anyone enduring the embarrassment of having that lame-as-fuck gag carry on for longer than it already had. The South Australian coast came in sight on the 30th of March, and the Discovery entered the Gulf of St. Vincent on the 31st, lying at anchor overnight before receiving guests from the official launch. Lady Pakita Mawson and the Mawson Daughters... Edgeworth David, and Cecil Madigan among them. Davis helmed the ship, overflown repeatedly by a trio of gypsy moth biplanes from the local branch of the Australian Aero Club, into McLaren's wharf, where it seemed the whole of the city of Adelaide turned out to welcome them, one punter falling off the wharf in his enthusiasm and enjoying a brief stay on the Discovery's deck after being retrieved from the water. A lavish reception dinner at the town hall, hosted by the mayor, Lavington Boniathan, saw Edgeworth David give a rousing speech lauding the merits of the expedition and its constituent members, for which he received the sort of prolonged standing ovation his orations generally warranted. Professor Johnson and his tweed trousers stayed on in his hometown, but everyone else sailed aboard the Discovery once more, departing Port Adelaide on the 3rd of April and arriving at Port Phillip Heads on the 8th. Alf Howard's father came aboard with customs agents off the Gillibrand Light which is just up the road from my place. The collections and their curators dispersed and the ship went into the Williamstown Yards for a refit. Frank Hurley edited together an interim movie of Banzari events and achievements, playing in cinemas as Southwood Ho with Mawson. Ticket returns going into the coffers for the next phase of the project. In spite of the deepening effects of the Great Depression, Macpherson Robertson stumped up a further 6,000 personal pounds, and this helped encourage the Australian government to maintain its support for the second austral summer of Banzari work. Norwegian ships visiting Australian ports with their cargoes of oil further spurred interest in getting Australia's bootprint over as wide a swath of Antarctica as possible. Once the shipwrights finished their work, the Discovery sailed to Hobart and tied up alongside Queen's Wharf, ready to bunker coal, take water and receive expedition cargo, vittles, and members, before heading south once more. First Officer Mackenzie received his first command when Captain Davis stepped aside, or when Mawson gave Captain Davis the arse. No doubt Mawson felt confident of a more aggressive approach to approaching the ice, based on Mackenzie's stated disappointment in Davis timidity the previous Austral summer, and Mackenzie did allow the previously denied canvas windbreaks around the bridge. Frank Hurley, Determined not to sail again under Davis due to the captain's unwillingness to work to Hurley's preferences for movie sequences, didn't stay at home and sulk when he learnt of Mackenzie's elevation, heading to Hobart with high expectations of a relationship more conducive to his photographic and cinematographic wishes with the ship's new master. Morton Moyes couldn't take leave of absence from his naval duties for a second season, the cartographer role instead falling to Lieutenant Oom of the Royal Australian Navy. James Marr couldn't join the second voyage due to illness, and Kennedy, a veteran of the Australian Antarctic Expedition, taking his berth and expected to focus his energy on magnetic measurements. Max Stanton came aboard as Chief Officer to fill Mackenzie's former boots. Pilot Stuart Campbell received an anonymous gift, a sculpture of a well-endowed monkey in brass, the note with it stating, Please take south to ice-covered Antarctica for interesting experiment. Hurley, was that you, you scamp? Lofty Martin, inexperienced in blue water work during his first voyage, learnt the rigging and sails during that trip to the extent he was appointed bosun for the second summer foray. As the discovery threw off lines on the 22nd of November and began moving lazily away from Queen's Wharf, her plimsoll lined below the water due to the sepherit of stuff filling every nook and cranny, 430 tonnes of coal among it, a man in his underwear charged through the crowds and threw himself aboard. One of the ABs, tempted to lever his back pay out of Captain Mackenzie by the bright lights of Hobart, got roll for his roll and his clothes, and cut it very fine retrieving his job, if not his dignity, from the hole he dug himself into overnight. Doc Ingram assumed his customary position in the chart room, under the chart table as his seasickness kicked in, the mill rise being a notorious shallow stretch of the southern ocean to the south of Tasmania, that regularly sees the sea stand up straight, the waves going by with verandas on them. Hurley, living up to the high standard of practical joke already set by the previous expedition, turned the decos on Professor Johnson's tweed trousers while the biologist was bent over to clear a freeing port. Fowler also got a laugh when Sir Douglas, on deck to make a decision about whether or not to run an oceanographic station, received a drubbing by a wave. But fellow's laughter saw his leader's mind land on proceeding with the sampling, so sometimes laughter isn't the medicine it's cracked up to be. The discovery pushed on to Macquarie Island. The motor launch and dinghy put a party ashore, but the sealer's huts, not used since 1918, two years after the island, came under the jurisdiction of the National Parks and Wildlife Service of Tasmania and declared a sanctuary, were in such a poor state that the tents came out for their first use. Mawson led visits to the site of the wireless station established during the AAE, and the shore party located the cave in which the survivors of the wreck of the schooner Eagle, nine men and the captain's wife, spent two miserable years eating penguins and Macquarie Island cabbage. Rescue for that party finally came in the form of a sealing ship, arriving the day after the nine men buried the malnourished corpse of the one woman. Fletcher obtained several skins of elephant seals for an economic assessment of a potential pelt industry, one I can only imagine focusing on the suckling young and the weaners, because the adults' coats aren't anything to write home about or to pay good money in order to wear. Nothing came of Fletcher's efforts either way, and Macquarie Island's elephant seals went unmolested by sealers from this era onwards. Sailing south from Macquarie, the discovery came in sight of the factory whaling vessel, the James Clark Ross on the 15th of December. A tentative arrangement to bunker coal from the factory ship didn't really amount to much of a relief as the dearth of whales around the Baliny Islands saw the Ross lying further west than previously discussed. The Discovery spent 10 days chasing down the contact at a cost of 60 tonnes of coal for a prospective boost of 100 tonnes. But having gotten alongside, the Discovery's yard's cock build and a blue whale carcass acting as a fender between the ships They weren't going to say no to that 40-tonne game. Purley sought and received permission to go aboard the whale chaser, the Star X, to film state-of-the-art whaling practices. With bunkering complete and the water tanks topped up, a number of the Discovery's contingent went aboard the James Clark Ross to marvel at the work in progress on the Flensing plan. Fletcher recorded this as a frenetic scene of action occurring boot-deep in blood which ran in continuous streams through the freeing ports, with the donkey engines and razor-sharp blades reducing a 27-metre blue whale to its component parts in under an hour, with only the intestines going over the side. Fletcher spent most of his time aboard near the Pigsty, where 20 exceedingly well-fed pigs contemplated life at sea with an air of immense contentment and a far sweeter cassoulet than that wafting around the flensing operations. The Discovery cast off lines and stood out from the James Clark Ross to await the return of the Star X with Hurley, the crew working busily to rid the deck of all trace of its recent contact with horses and cargo from the blood and entrails suffused James Clark Ross, and thereby rid their environs of the smell all the more quickly, but it soon came to light that Eric Douglas was left behind. Third Officer Child rode the ship's dinghy over to the factory vessel to collect Douglas and Hurley, the Star X having returned in the meantime. On reaching the James Clark Ross, Child received the news that Hurley, on discovering Douglas still aboard, talked the aviator into another adventure aboard another whale chaser, just about to depart. The 24-hour delay this imposed on the expedition pissed Mawson off and he let Hurley know all about it when the chaser came alongside the discovery the following day. But Hurley being Hurley, the tirade slipped off his duck's back, which he then patted himself on generously for having gotten such first-rate footage. Mackenzie weighed down by the responsibilities placed on his shoulders in the jump from first officer to master of the Discovery, became increasingly sullen and insular, and where bad weather brought out the best in Davis, known to burst into song during fraught moments on the open bridge, Mackenzie displayed visible nervousness when the bottom fell out of the barometer, as often happens at high latitudes in the Southern Ocean. Hurley, previously hopeful that a change in leadership would lead to a commensurate change in the ship's overall relationship with the photographer, found himself disappointed when requests to alter course to more advantageously present some icebergs to the camera were refused. Whale steaks donated to the Discovery's larder by the whalers were cooked up and given tentative tastings, but universally rejected. The remaining meat and liver going over the side without ceremony, and fervent hopes that the still-pervasive odour of dead whale might dissipate all the faster for that deep-sixing. Campbell and Douglas unpacked the gypsy moth its wings nearly surfaced with fresh-doped linen to replace that damaged by icicles the previous summer, from its crate to top the winch house, and began assembling it in anticipation of making flights from Commonwealth Bay, Old Ducks Ips being particularly eager to see his former stomping ground from the air. Poor weather through Christmas kept the crew on their toes, and by the 28th they neared the pack and the approximate position of the Cosmos, the largest factory whaling vessel of the day, and a possible source of more coal for the hungry fire in the belly of the Discovery. Captain Mackenzie acted on orders from the whaling vessel to cock the yards and come alongside. A long, large swell caused the two ships to roll toward each other alarmingly, in spite of the dead fin whale fenders between them, while Captain Andressen gave the Discovery 50 tonnes of slack coal, sending it down to the foredeck of the smaller vessel via gravity and a chute. Whereupon all hands attempted and failed to trim it with sufficient speed to keep up with the flow, all the while dealing with the renewed nausea that only the charnel house and the whaling station can propagate. Captain Mackenzie was later heard to mutter that he wouldn't go alongside another twenty two thousand ton ship in such a swell for fifty tons of gold, let alone coal. On reaching the pack, three days of increasingly shitty weather saw Mackenzie. Follow the advice of the whale chaser captains, ducking into the looser pack to find a grounded iceberg to lie in the lee of, but even with the engine working hard, the Discovery was hard put to heave to in the conditions, and shifts and eddies in the wind saw any open water in such positions close up over the course of hours. The hull of the Discovery, built for ice work but not invincible, took much pummeling during these days, and while the carpenter reported all sound after sounding the tanks, Mawson, normally optimistic in spite of the worst forecasts of the mariners in his company, announced to the scientists that the situation was critical and that it was touch and go whether the ship would survive the punishment the ice dished out. The Discovery lost its radio antenna array when the rigging brushed the overhanging ice of the berg protecting the ship from the pack and on the Discovery being blown backward into the pack edge, a large mass of ice stopped the propeller and the engine dead potentially damaging them from the impact and the resulting pressure backed up in the steam system respectively. Fortunately, the engine started again and the ship moved out of danger, everyone aboard issuing a sigh of relief with caveats that they weren't out of the frying pan just yet. On New Year's Day, winds at 70 knots gusting 85, they saw two whale chasers of the Cosmos fleet in the same circumstances, tucked in the lee of icebergs one vessel passing within hailing distance, which must have been quite close, given the wind. The Norwegians on the nearer boat, their stern post pushed in as per the endurance, intended taking the first lull in the wind as their opportunity to head for Cape Town and repairs, a long distance to aim to run with the pumps battling the leaks, but the alternative was to abandon ship, and mariners hate that. Mackenzie's previously disdainful comments about Captain Davis' timidity must have echoed loud in his ears as he realised his former commander wasn't wrong to consider the pack a deadly and untrustworthy adversary. Where he might have picked up the information freely and painlessly had he been willing to heed Davis, Mackenzie learnt, the hard way, that an experienced ice pilot is, by definition, an inexperienced ice pilot who only ever made good decisions over an extended period, as a single gross failure on that front would prevent him getting much older fairly abruptly. Gaining the sort of spurs John King Davis fielded required huge energy and vigilance, and it cost him a lot of stress. Mackenzie stood at the starting line of a gruelling marathon John King Davis already ran and won many times over. Land came in view as the weather eased, and Mawson, Kennedy and Hurley scoured the coast with binoculars as the discovery approached Commonwealth Bay, waiting to spot familiar landmarks and to see what changes the elements wrought on their former home 17 years on. Mackenzie experienced difficulty anchoring. The scientists got their shore kit together. Campbell and Douglas worked on the Gypsy Moth. The weather continued windy because Cape Denison. On the 5th of January, finally becalmed and anchored as firmly as Mackenzie could manage, the motor launch took the shore party to Boat Harbour. The outer walls of the main hut, scoured by wind-borne snow, lost 12mm thickness to the ablative processes, as measured against the nails, standing proud of the remaining wood. With the roof nearing collapse, the interior of the hut was almost completely filled with compacted snow, which Campbell and Fletcher began digging out to allow Kennedy Space to take magnetic measurements within, these showing the south magnetic pole significantly shifted in the intervening years since the magnetic series carried out by Webb during the AAE. Fletcher and Campbell discovered some chocolate on a shelf their efforts uncovered and found it in good nick, though it didn't survive their testing process. Bloody vandals, I'm telling the Antarctic Heritage Trust. At midday, Mawson called the shore Party together to witness the formal claiming ceremony with flag, proclamation, signed and countersigned copy of the proclamation and a carved board announcing... The British flag was raised and British sovereignty asserted on the 5th day of January 1931. Write that down and see if you can work out what I hope the wind ablated that sentence down to, which made me laugh most heartily. Six of the shore party remained ashore overnight, and Campbell, Doc Ingram and Fletcher tried their hand at skiing the following morning. Finding themselves bad at it, they then tried tobogganing, and the trio crashed into a Waddell seal at speed to the distress of all involved but the injury of none, the seal quickly resuming its nap when the monkeys disentangled themselves from it. The motor launch collected the party, their samples and collections, a cache of minimum 17-year-old tinned food and an 18-litre can of petrol that later served in the motor launch's engine without causing any problems, or at least none that the troublesome unit wasn't already experiencing. Oceanographic sampling kept the discovery within Commonwealth Bay through to the evening and sustained good weather saw Campbell and Douglas make a half hour flight to reconnoiter ice conditions to the southwest, reporting a 30 mile thick band of pack extending westward, leading to a decision to skirt the edge of the apparently less thick line of pack to the southeast, but on the 8th, Mawson called for progress westward and the expedition went about. The Discovery set a new speed record for itself during this phase of the expedition, taking advantage of a steady south easterly wind with all sail set and full steam to reach nine knots speed over ground. This didn't last long, as with the barometer falling and the wind strengthening, Mackenzie ordered sails first reefed and then taken in, and the ship was soon embroiled in another bout of sixty five to seventy knot airs, featuring blowing snow, bergs, and growlers. The building seas began to overtop the bulwarks, and the weather deck was often covered waist-deep in green water, and the two crew working the helm had to work hard to hold course and prevent another broaching. Fletcher described the ship's movement at this juncture as a corkscrew motion as the round-hulled Discovery dived from wave peak to trough and back up the next peak. The weather eased on the 13th of January as the Discovery traversed parallel to the Wilkes coast, though unlike Wilkes they actually saw it. With bad weather and busy times at Commonwealth Bay delaying the celebration of the new year, the scientists held a concert party to hail the anniversary of the claiming ceremony at Possession Island. The favourite comic turn, which is distinct from a comic turn, one for the birders there, being Dodgers of the Pack Ice, but I can't find record of the script or theme. With fair weather on the 14th, Campbell took a flight with Grandpa Oom, reporting land 100 nautical miles to the south and heavy pack ice between it and the ship. A headland they sighted went in the log and from there onto a chart as Cape Goodenough, reflecting Mawson's increasing antsiness about the state of the sightings and the claims the Banzari so far achieved. The ship's rolling caused the Gypsy Moth some small damage as it knocked against the ship's hull while the ABs craned the aircraft back aboard but it wasn't anything beyond addressed by the skills of Douglas and Campbell. With a long tongue of pack blocking progress west, the Gypsy Moth went up once more, Campbell and Douglas making a 90-minute reconnaissance and reporting open water 30 miles to the south adjacent to an icy coast. Mackenzie, eager to demonstrate that he had Davis metal, opted for a southerly course, battering the discovery against the pack in an attempt to reach the reported open water but the ice proved too dense and Mackenzie gave the effort away before the ship got too badly beaten up. Sir Douglas added the aerial land sighting to the log and it went on the associated map as Banzari land, lying between 120 and 130 degrees east. Drifting in open water, unable to do much other than take oceanographic samples, Campbell and Mawson once more took advantage of relative calm to get in the air on the 18th, but a low ceiling of cloud kept the aircraft below 3,000 feet, which wasn't much good for navigating over the pack or for seeing what lay further afield. On the following day, eager to find somewhere to make a continental landing, Sir Douglas urged the pilots to make use of the marginal sea state to get airborne and Eric Douglas accepted the challenge. With Sir Douglas as his passenger, Douglas set the Gypsy Moth to its takeoff run, but the waves regularly put the floats underwater, wiping away any speed the aircraft managed to gain up to that point. Eric Douglas later recounted this as the hairiest takeoff of his flying career. Quote Early in the takeoff run it became evident I would need all my skill to get the plane off safely, for as we picked up speed and planed over the tops of the swells, it was thrown repeatedly into the air without proper flying speed. It was touch and go, but we made it with about 100 yards to spare before we cleared the dangerous pack ice. End quote. A 20-minute flight south revealed apparent ice-covered land in the distance. Returning on the reciprocal course, the cloud cover obscured all and Douglas let the Gypsy Moth down in a nerve-wracking glide until the ship came in view, which is preferable to finding cloud extending to sea level, the first indication of this being the side of an iceberg. The swell state hadn't improved in their absence and after an exciting landing, Douglas made three attempts to taxi the aircraft under the ship's lifting tackle, where Sir Douglas got the machine hooked up. A wave passed under the aircraft, lifting it, and setting the lifting wire slack. The wave passed on. The aircraft fell away. The lifting line came taut with a snap, one of the hooks holding the aircraft to it, straightened out, and half the sling system broke away, leaving the gypsy moth dangling from the remaining rig, down by one wing and with its tail submerged. Sir Douglas... Holding onto the spreader atop the badly split and leaking petrol tank ended up hanging from the inverted aircraft, his legs dipping into the sea as the waves passed the ship, fuel washing over him. The moth reverted to upright in time for the remnants of the lifting tackle to break under the strain, and the aircraft drifted clear of the ship, somewhat down by the tail. The dinghy came to the aid of the damp aviators, and the motor launch came off its davits to tow the stricken machine alongside while the ABs re-rigged the boom sufficient to get the Gypsy Moth back on board in one piece, albeit a battered one. Hurley captured the whole sequence on one of his cine cameras, and if it weren't life and death stuff, the footage could fit into the best of Buster Keaton's works. Maybe watch it with a silent era cinema comedy organ track to set the slapstick mood. Examining the damage on deck, the aviators determined they could fix their mount, but the gypsy moth came as close to a write-off as it's possible to come, without actually putting pen to paper. Further steaming brought the discovery inside of a dome-shaped ice mass deemed too tall, at 320 metres, to be a grounded berg. Mawson naming it Bowman Island, after Isaiah Bowman of the American Geographic Society, who helped Sir Douglas during the expedition fundraising efforts. Mackenzie then got the discovery clear of the pack and grounded bergs, heading west with all sails set to make use of a following wind to rendezvous with the factory vessel, the Nielsen Alonso, for a 25 tonne coal boost arranged over the radio. This bunkering never took place, as a gale from the east saw the Discovery making seven knots under bare poles, and the large following sea forced Mackenzie to turn head to wind and heave to, barely holding ground with the Discovery at full steam. Mackenzie ordered oil put on the troubled waters, but his inexperience in such matters saw him send Fletcher and Oom forward with a punctured drum of oil to suspend from the bow railing. The oil dripped out too fast and the current swept it behind the ship before its sheen could spread over the water's surface, much of it coming back aboard and coating the officers and helmsmen on the bridge. One of the ABs with more storms under his belt than his captain knew the optimum approach was to slow the release of the oil to a trickle and to ensure its influence spread as wide as possible, achieving this with a thick wad of cotton waste soaked in oil and suspended just on the waterline at the bow. It did help a little, but the ship stayed afloat more because the winds eased and the waves, always lagging behind the wind, became less steep as the Discovery moved away from the continental shelf and over deeper waters. On the 31st, the Banzari lay in the approximate position of the termination ice tongue, but that ice tongue wasn't where Mawson and Davis charted it previously. The large number of grounded bergs and a Norwegian whale vessel's report of a 200km long berg to the north of the area a few years earlier supported the hypothesis that the ice tongue broke up. This was bad news for Mawson, as the stream of pack ice previously held in check by that ice tongue now drifted free along the coast of Queen Maryland, precluding their approaching for the landing detailed in the most recent instructions from Australia. British reticence about ceding claiming authority to a colonial geologist decades ago bit the newly minted Commonwealth in the arse. A week later, a chaser, the Ornan Three, passed by, but neither vessel acknowledged the other. Fletcher commenting they might as well have been sailing the waters of Sydney Harbour rather than the vast, empty expanses of the Southern Ocean for all the fuss made. But the sighting of a factory vessel, the Falk, and its attendant Collier, the Listress, the following day, generated more excitement. Mackenzie brought the discovery to within hailing distance, and Mawson responded to an invitation to board the Falk, where Captain Lars Anderson agreed to release 20 tonnes of coal and informed Sir Douglas that 40 factory vessels and 240 chasers that he knew of worked the Southern Ocean whale population that season. In his words, more ships than whales. Mackenzie cock built the yards but came alongside the wrong ship and then got Huffy at the order to remove one of the two whales acting as fenders in order that the listrous derrick, unable to span the gap between the ships, could actually make the transfer instead of dropping the coal in the sea. Captain Anderson, observing the shit show from the Falk, called out that the Discovery could heed instructions or go without. Mackenzie standing on his pride isn't as crappy as Bird trying to blackmail whalers into attending on him at the Bay of Wales, but clearly you don't try any shit when you're dealing with Norwegian whalers or they'll call you on it and leave you without even the lump of coal naughty children can expect from Santa. Big beards and lots of red all over their vessels but they didn't do the jolly thing when faced with truculent dunderheadedness. Simmers called to attention the unusual sight of two women watching proceedings from the railing of the Falk, neither appearing dressed for flensing or the Antarctic. This will factor into some firsts due for recounting in future episodes. After leaving the Falk to continue processing whales and the Lystris to start its transit back to Durban for more coal, the discovery stopped to allow a test flight of the repaired gypsy moth. Campbell and Douglas, with assistance from the ever-adaptable Hurley, got the machine back into something approaching its original shape, and the aviators deemed it airworthy, though it flew with a list to starboard that required a constant aileron input to counter, trenching of the airframe's already low cruising speed and short endurance. True to Captain Larson's account, the Discovery encountered more and more whaling vessels as they continued west. True to Captain Larson's assessment of the ship-to-whale ratio, none of the whalers they saw towed or processed any rauk Of the three factory vessels sighted in the following days, only the Tafelborough could exceed to Mawson's constant refrain, Got any coal? And then, only to the tune of 50 tonnes, and only after March the 1st. And while the Banzari couldn't afford to sneer at the amount... The time caveat placed the offer beyond their needs. Mawson visited Captain Clarius Mikkelsen commanding Lars Christensen's factory vessel Torshammer, where the Norwegian showed the Australian a chart of the coast covering Enderby land to Coats land and indicating where the Norvegia was operating that season. The discovery crossed the Antarctic Circle for the first time that austral summer near the western extremity of McRobertson land, as determined by sightings from the crow's nest made the previous year. Campbell took Mawson on a short flight south, but the low cloud ceiling prevented much observation other than smoke on the horizon from the British-flagged factory vessel, the new Sevilla. The discovery pushed southward into increasing ice, but on visiting the new Sevilla, Mawson came away with an empty coal scuttle, the larger ship already nearing its reserve limit. Further flights picked out a path through less dense ice, and the discovery continued south, eventually reaching 68 degrees 14 minutes south. On the 11th of February, Campbell, flying with Mawson as passenger, dropped the flag over the continental plateau south of Cape Darnley, the ice reaching to a height of 1,200 metres. They also spied open water to the north and west of a coast Mawson named Princess Elizabethland Land. Before returning to the ship, the discovery lying in a body of water extending southward Mawson decided should be called the Mackenzie Sea. Taking advantage of the relatively ice-clear waters, Mackenzie steered towards the McRobertson land coast on the 12th, and the scientists prepared for a landing. The motor launch went out, but the 40 knot winds and the growing swell made even approaching the rocky shore of what Mawson named Murray Monolith dangerous. With a landing impossible, Sir Douglas biffed a copy of the claiming proclamation ashore in a sealed cylinder, followed by the carved board and the flagstaff and flag, but clearly he didn't have enough Wheaties for breakfast, though Mawson claimed Colbeck held the motor launch too far off the rocks, as the whole lot fell back down the steep shore and into the sea. They retrieved the sealed cylinder as it floated clear of the surge zone, and a second attempt placed it out of the swash, though probably not clear of spring tides and iceberg-mediated surges. I very much doubt it's still there, but the Adelie penguins witnessed it all. By Fowler's estimate, the nearby rookery comprised 300,000 of the birds, so I guess he could go ask them about it. The following day, Mawson did make a landing at the 300-metre rocky spire he named Scullin Monolith after the Australian Prime Minister. While there, he raised a flag, built a can and buried a proclamation in a cylinder, thereby laying claim to all the land between the Daly and McRobertson lands and all the associated islands sighted during their voyages, including Drygalski, Horden, David, Masson, Henderson, and Haswell, a far more official affair than the hurriedly thrown equivalent from the previous day. Mackenzie, meanwhile, was chafing at this extended period among bergs and floes, and during an emotional outburst, accused Mawson of running his ship into danger. Ethical niceties of politics aside, Mackenzie, as master of the vessel, bore overall responsibility for the safety of those on board, and I figure his frustration arose from his inability to push back against Sir Douglas' strong personality when concerns about that responsibility should have been his first and only priority. Captains receive the notoriety, respect and pay they do because they earn them, and similarly receive condemnation and unemployment if they fail, just once, to do their job effectively. A scientist with a government mandate cannot and should not expect to override that responsibility with their own concerns and desires, no matter how big a bastard they're willing to be. If a ship runs into danger, look to the captain to wear the bulk of the blame. Mackenzie was in the wrong to let Mawson badger him into situations Davis didn't tolerate. A more competent shot with the otter trawl than in the previous summer resulted in a magnificent haul of strange and wondrous creatures the biologists pored over and curated for days. A final continental landing on the 17th saw the usual flag, proclamation, cylinder, can rigmarole at the foot of the McRobertson Land Mountains, sighted but not visited a year earlier, while Mackenzie stood off, concerned that the echo sounder record of the undulating seafloor passed over in the approach to the area boated ill in terms of likely shallow shoals in the uncharted waters. The shore party, arriving back at the discovery an hour later than stipulated, received a tirade from the increasingly fraught Mackenzie. Heading for Tasmania, the mainmast received its yards once more to increase the sail area that might aid the ship along in the face of the rapidly disappearing coal stocks. With the ship lightly loaded, Its always lively movement reached new and dizzying extremes, and two containers of aviation fuel sprang leaks from their shuffling dance under their deck restraints. The punctured drums went over the side, but the spill already covered the aft deck. Mackenzie banned smoking and promised to throw anyone caught in breach of the ban overboard, and in his fraught state, no one doubted the sincerity of the threat. During a subsequent gale, Mackenzie ordered Hurley up among the rigging with a movie camera to come down and stay down because if he went overboard there was no way the ship could turn to attempt a rescue. Hurley, always hard-headed when exciting footage and images lay in the offing, wrote and signed a document exonerating Mackenzie of any blame should the photographer die from his endeavours aloft. I don't think you reach ship's master's status without realising such documents aren't worth much when someone's seeking to prosecute or sue you over a death but by this stage I think the captain felt it easier and more satisfying to let Hurley die than to argue, and if he survived, the problem didn't exist. Win-win. Toward the end of that gale, the waves exceeded the height of any experienced previously by any member of the crew, standing taller than the 34 metre tall masts and leaving the sails slack in the knocks between wave peaks. All through the transit north, from the screaming 60s to the furious 50s, and into the Roaring Forties, the oceanographic station work carried on. Concerned about the ship's centre of gravity, Mackenzie ordered coal trimming detail, moving briquettes from the saddle stores to the centre bunkers. The day spent moving the tonnage about, revealing the captain's cooking of the coal reserve books. Twice as much coal remained as the previous most optimistic estimates. In spite of Mackenzie's vocal condemnation of his predecessor's timidity among the ice... He'd worked the same trick in cutting short the coastal work by dint of misrepresenting the remaining coal, thereby increasing the margins in favour of safety. Fletcher estimated the Banzari might have spent another three or four days off the McRobertson land coast before putting the ship in danger of running out of fuel. But as I mentioned earlier, the safety of the ship is the concern of its captain and a thankless job that often is. If the ship foundered in the gale because she ran too light or went aground trying to sail up the Dotrocasto channel with the loss of all hands, the extra three or four days on the coast of McRobertson land would have been bought at a very high price. And we only don't know of more stories like that, because so often the people who might tell us them all died in the making of those tales and left no trace of their fate on the surface of the sea. The discovery reached the Dotrocasto on the 19th of March and lay off Southport overnight all hands turning to the task of hauling up and throwing overboard the ash from the firebox, laid in as some small ballast against the mass lost up the funnel in burning hundreds of tons of coal. The heavy, dusty work received some lubrication in drinks laid on, and Mackenzie invited each member of the crew to his cabin for a tot of something fiery and to apologise for being such trouble, which it wasn't on him to provide, because Captain, and which Campbell refused to accept, because Jerk. On the afternoon of March the 19th, the Discovery sailed up the Derwent River, where ships of the Royal Australian Navy dipped welcome with their flags, and tooted welcome with a brass band on the flagship. The Banzari came alongside Queen's Wharf once more, with 60 tonnes of coal still in the bunkers. 113 oceanographic stations, 100 prominent landmarks surveyed and named, 4 claiming ceremonies, 3 of them on the continent itself. The Banzari wasn't the best organised or the smoothest running Antarctic expedition, but it did kick some goals, including diminishing the United States of America's historical stakes in the continent by sailing through areas Wilkes marked on his charts as coastlines. The Royal Company Islands and Emerald Island, ephemeral since the 1830s, were similarly demonstrated to not exist. Orders in council passed in February 1933 ratified the claims in the eyes of British legal eagles and the Australian government accepted responsibility for the claimed regions by an act of parliament in August 1936. Sovereign rights settled once and for all. I said once and for all! At Mawson's urging, Hurley applied his standard skill and energy to the task of editing the footage of the transits, the survey flights, the sampling and the claiming ceremonies into a compelling narrative, but the resulting movie, The Siege of the South, suffered from a dearth of drama. Where Ponting's visual account of Scott's final expedition featured the tragic and much romanticised death of its central character and his companions, and Hurley's accounts of Mawson's AAE and Shackleton's ITAE featured Mawson's life and death race against the elements and the crushing of the Endurance, respectively, the Banzari voyages featured no great drama and very little audiences at home might even consider divertingly novel penguins, orca and icebergs, were old newsreels. Compared to the moving accounts of dramatic events at high latitudes his previous films comprised, the Banzari movie only stands as a good document of foreign policy as expressed in polar explorer form. Having witnessed the scramble for whales up close, Mawson lost some of his interest in the industry, but he saw the financial potential in other aspects of his discoveries in the south. He imagined settlements serving mining interests and supporting summer cruises bringing tourists and winter sports enthusiasts. He saw profits to be made in harvesting seal products, penguin eggs, and in the farming of white foxes for their pelts. Late to the party Wilkins tried to start most of his adult life, Mawson advocated that Antarctic bases should make daily meteorological reports by radio. Banzari reports trickled slowly out of the offices of the scientists in charge of the analysis and write-up of the accumulated data, but as with many previous expeditions, there was a lot that never saw the printing press, with time and money in short supply and enthusiasm waning after the fun parts of Antarctic exploration were squared away. In spite of the friction they experienced during the first Banzari voyage, John King Davis and Douglas Mawson remained good friends. Davis returned to his role as Navigation Officer for the Australian Government and presided over the Victorian chapter of the Royal Society through the 1940s. Sir Douglas Mawson remained an advocate for Australian interests in Antarctica for the rest of his life, but never returned south again. Banzari marked the end of the Discovery's career in the Southern Ocean. The much-loved and much-cursed vessel returned to London and laid up in the docks, spent time as a training ground for the Sea Scouts and then for the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, before being handed over to the Maritime Trust, eventually returning to Dundee for preservation and display. Next episode, I'll start addressing Norwegian exploratory expeditions, mostly under Lars Christensen's auspices, some of which occurred concurrent to and intersected with the Banzari. And after that, it's on to the British Grahamland Expedition the first terrestrial work carried out around the Antarctic Peninsula since the British Imperial Antarctic Expedition, and marking the start of a golden age of British dog sledge work in the South. The more I read about or speak to people about dog sledging, the more I think I really missed out, first reaching Antarctica when I did, a decade after the last dogs left. I've lived with cats since 1999, but I'm most definitely a dog person, and accounts of the exhilaration and interspecies camaraderie of dog sledging in Antarctica are among the most moving literature I've read from that continent. I got all melancholy at the end of episode 82 about Pat, but he's not the only person who saw me heading down this path who didn't get to see where it would lead me. Michelle, Brock, Peter, Sarah and Cameron. I wish I could share this with them. I wish I could invite them south with me, Cameron especially. His death stemmed from a medical examination in preparation for a deployment to run multi-beam surveys off Australia's research stations. Shadows on his lung x-ray and a long history of smoking saw him on notice for a lung cancer diagnosis, but a past pneumothorax precluded a needle biopsy. The doctor that opened up his thoracic cavity to take the sample left behind a fragment of that clotting sponge stuff, and that made its way into his spine and caused the swelling that damaged his spinal cord. Life in a wheelchair is hard to adapt to for anyone, but Cameron, accustomed to spending a quarter to a third of each year at sea, really skidded hard. Pneumonia knocked him on the head a couple of years later. Turned out the shadow in the x-ray was dormant tuberculosis, which left alone would have done him no more harm than it already had. I can understand opting to minimise type 2 errors when cancer is a possibility, but that Cameron's wife died from undiagnosed breast cancer made his demise a grimly pertinent bookend by which to illustrate type 1 and type 2 errors in balancing your probability decisions. Cameron and I often discussed our mutual interest in Antarctica during our time at sea where we shared cabins, space on the bridge, and watched the sea go by. I think he would have loved Antarctica, gotten pissed on Sauvignon Blanc in Antarctica, and mapped Antarctic benthos like the multi-beam sonar mofo that he was. I regularly cull people from my life, both in the digital realms and in meat space. If I'm still talking to you, it's because I love you in some quiet, lazy way. And I'll grieve you in a similar vein if you die while I'm still awake and alert. So many stupid assholes I've kicked to the curb of my life carry on, but a gem like Cameron, rough cut, to be sure, is five years dead and buried. If you're one of those arsoes, and you'll know it if you are, because I will have told you in no uncertain terms what I think of you, please stop listening. Cameron can't hear me because he's dead. You're alive but I really wish I could swap your life for his, and I would if that power lay anywhere within my grasp. Don't listen to someone who wishes you dead as fervently as I do. You're unlikely to hear anything to your benefit, and you're pissing me off. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and tell the people you love that you love them while they're awake and alert, because your words can't reach them if you hold them in until the funeral. And never deliberately cause unwarranted harm. That's abuse and the path to arsehole, and I kick arseholes to the curb of my life. Shouting out to Xavier, who can finally appreciate it.